I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 50. This week we're going to bring you a single long piece of fantasy, rather than the usual two shorter stories. And rather than spend a lot of time on preamble, let me jump right in and tell you about our author this week. Christopher Barzak is the author of the Crawford Fantasy Award-winning novel One for Sorrow, which was made into the major motion picture Jamie Marks is Dead. His second novel, The Love We Share Without Knowing, was a finalist for the Nebula and James Tiptree Jr. Awards. He's also the author of two collections, Birds and Birthdays and Before and Afterlives, which won the 2013 Shirley Jackson Award for Best Collection. Christopher grew up in rural Ohio, has lived in a Southern California beach town, the capital of Michigan, and has taught English outside of Tokyo, Japan, where he lived for two years. His next novel, Wonders of the Invisible World, will be published by Knopf in September 2015. Currently, he teaches fiction writing in the Northeast Ohio MFA program at Youngstown State University. You can learn more about Chris at ChristopherBarzak.com. Our narrator for this week's story is Tobias Queen. He is a father, husband, narrator and voice talent. Tobias has been talking to himself in a small padded room since about 2008, when people started paying him to do so. If you'd like to contact him... Just go to TobiasQueen.com or email him using the address on the triple F. And before we jump into the story, we at Far-Fetched Fables would like to offer a mea culpa. Last week, as you know, we ran Dark, Beautiful Force by Jessica May Lynn. We unfortunately miscredited the narrator as Cynthia Colby when Sarah Fredrickson, in fact, narrated it. Sarah stepped in and lent her voice when Cynthia was unfortunately unavailable for the story, we want to thank Sarah for jumping in on such short notice and helping to keep us on schedule, and we also look forward to future narration from Cynthia. As this is a purely virtual media, no trees were harmed in the making of this episode. 
With that said, it's time to relax. Grab your favorite beverage and give a listen to The Guardian of the Egg Written by Christopher Barzak Read by Tobias Queen My sister was the girl with the tree growing out of her head. You've probably heard of her. You might have seen her on TV. Her picture was plastered all over the place for a while. That shock of wheat ruffling around her face like a great golden mane. The weeping willow tree growing out of the top of her head. Her skin white as chalk and smooth as porcelain. Those tiny tiger lilies that grew between her eyelashes. And all of those geese she kept under her mossy cloak. A freak show, really. I understand why everyone thought she might be working with a foreign government or that she'd been irradiated by the local nuclear power plant. But really, she was just another ordinary teenager under all of that flora. I know because... She was my older sister. Hester was a straight-A student. She was going to be class valedictorian. No one was really surprised. She wore white stockings and old-fashioned sweaters with pearl buttons. The girls at school used to make fun of her because of how she dressed and because of how smart she was. Also, maybe due to the fact that she had braces and bad acne, and her hair might have been styled better, and she had a habit of looking down at her feet, shuffling through the hallways. She bumped into people a lot because of this. I was two years younger, in the tenth grade. I pretended not to know her. It was easy to do that because she never saw me in the hallways. Her head was always pointed towards the floor. When the tree started growing out of her head, it was springtime. Only a few more months of school remained before she'd graduate and go off to college. At first, you could look right at her and not notice the tree, unless you got close and examined the part down the middle of her hair. After a few weeks, though, it was the size of a flower blooming. A little weeping willow. Kids started to call her Daisy Head Maisie, and they'd laugh and elbow each other when she walked by. Hester didn't pay them any attention, although I'd shrink back into the hollow of my locker whenever I saw her coming, those weeping willow branches swaying back and forth like a grass hula skirt. Hester didn't seem to mind the tree. In fact, when she discovered it, I remember the strange grin on her face, like she'd found forgotten money in one of her pockets. She seemed so excited that she parted her hair down the middle instead of on the side, as if she wanted people to notice it. She walked with her head held high. She looked a bit like maybe she thought she was better than everyone. I remember asking, Hester, why don't you get scissors and cut it off? And she winced as if the very thought was repulsive. 
I like it, Stephen, she said, tilting her head one way, then the other, while she looked at the tree from different angles in the mirror. It's gross, Hester, I said, and she narrowed her eyes and said, I don't expect you to understand this. Maybe you're even a little jealous. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. She sounded slightly religious, flipping her hair over one shoulder, then the other, examining the tree growing out of her cranium as if it were a pair of earrings. I'd never seen Hester so concerned with a mirror. My parents took Hester to a neurologist and then to a psychologist to ease some of their worries. The neurologist said the tree couldn't be removed because its roots grew directly into her cerebrum. She'd suffer brain damage if we fiddled with it. And anyway, he said, it doesn't seem to be hurting her. The tree roots conducted electrical currents, just like the other nerves in her brain. The psychologist said Hester was remarkably sane, considering she had a tree growing out of her head. She's coping quite well, he told my parents, and all my mother and father could do was raise their eyebrows and nod. Our high school decided to graduate Hester early. The school board said they didn't want any problems. Besides, said our principal, Mrs. Merriam, Everyone knows Hester is the smartest student in her class. Graduation would have been inevitable, wouldn't it? She shook hands with my parents briskly, then asked her secretary to see that all the forms were properly filled out. Reporters and talk show hosts stalked the sidewalks and fast food restaurants of our formerly quiet town. Paparazzi flashed pictures at innocent young girls who happened to be wearing their hair in a ponytail. Ponytails soon became stylistic suicide due to the first-glance similarity they shared with a tree growing out of a girl's head. This frustrated and angered many female athletes who liked to put their hair up while they jogged or played softball. Now they had to brush their hair out of their eyes as they dribbled or leaped hurdles. Because my sister was the reason for their troubles, the female athletes petitioned for her to move out of town. The petition never made it through the court system, though. A judge threw it out on account that you can't petition people to leave town. They have to do something wrong first, he said. And Ada McGowan, our school's best volleyball player, said, Oh yeah? Well, what do you call someone who grows a tree out of her head? I'd say that's pretty wrong. Wouldn't you? Hester seemed oblivious to the troubles her tree caused. She said, Really, Stephen, my tree isn't the problem. Those people create their own messes. They'd just like to think my tree is the reason. She seemed very wise and old when she spoke like this. In fact, Hester didn't seem like Hester after a while. I would search her face as she wandered through our tiny backyard, running her fingers through the water in the bird bath, cupping the water in her hands and releasing it, the sun glinting through the water as it ran back into the bath, and sometimes 
I couldn't even recognize her as my sister. She seemed larger than she used to, majestic even. This was when her skin turned pale and chalky, and overnight her hair changed from silky blonde to a shaggy golden wheat. This was also when my mother stopped Hester as she passed by the hall where our parents measured us each year on our birthdays and placed a pencil mark where the top of our heads met the wall. Hester, my mother said, come back here a minute. My mother took a pencil from the mug that sat next to our telephone. She marked the wall with a thin line, even though she'd already done the same thing three months earlier on Hester's seventeenth birthday. Hester stepped away from the wall this time, and my mother shook her head, her eyes widening. Within three months, my sister had grown nearly four inches. I don't know how to describe Hester before her changes started to happen. She was Hester, my older sister. She was plain and awkward and bad at conversation. You wouldn't invite her to a party. You you wouldn't ask her to a dance. You probably wouldn't want to have a locker next to hers either. You could become strange by association if you spent too much time near her. Hester didn't have any friends, and neither did I, but I had none because of Hester. Because of my embarrassment for Hester, I, I never brought anyone home. I'd meet Alex or Ryan or Chelsea at the movies or the mall, or else at a coffee house, or the park. They never asked about my family, and I never asked about theirs. We were conspirators in covering up our own pasts. We respected each other's secrets, never prying or becoming curious. We knew our own secrets weren't that interesting, and what pain we harbored, no one else would understand. We wouldn't find each other's problems to be problems anyway, so we never asked what they were. It was unavoidable, though. After Hester started to change, after the town itself started to change, and the media slipped into our lives, everyone discovered we were related. I was now the girl with the tree growing out of her head's brother. You might have heard someone call me by that name. You might have read a reporter quote me wrong in any variety of news articles or docudramas, and I never approved of the actor they chose to play my part in the made-for-TV movie, Wild Thing. He was uncouth, and my hair isn't even blonde. I never wear hiking boots, either. That was a dramatic affectation dreamed up by the director, most likely. But people started recognizing me anyway. I could no longer exist anonymously. Suddenly, my identity was more Hester than Stephen was ever Stephen. Suddenly, my identity was more Hester than Stephen was ever Stephen. When people saw me, they thought of Hester. How is your sister? They'd ask, or else, is Hester still growing? Or even, tell your sister her sort doesn't belong in our town. I'd nod and twitch a little at the people who held violence towards Hester in their hands. They seemed unforgiving, as if she'd done something to personally affront them. 
the postman, in particular, became decidedly spiteful. You should get someone to start landscaping this crap, he told me one afternoon in the summer. I looked to where he was pointing and saw vines growing around our mailbox. He pulled some vines away from the lid, stuffed our mail inside, then snapped the box shut. Sorry, I said, as he stalked down the driveway. But all he did was flick me the back of his hand. As summer wore on, Hester spent more and more time outside in the backyard. My parents installed a small above-ground swimming pool, and Hester would lounge on the deck with her feet curling into the blue water. I swam along the floor of the pool and watched the shadows from the light above rippling along the bottom. I watched Hester's toes flick back and forth above me. Tiny roots grew between her toes, like potato tubers. They soaked up the water, and Hester soaked up the sunlight, like a plant photosynthesizing. Hester was now at least eight feet tall, a giantess by all standards, and she continued to grow without pause. One day, my father hired a lumber company to bring us a truck full of lumber, and over the course of a few days, he fenced in our front and backyards. The fence stood twelve feet tall, a virtual fortress. There are too many people in our business, he grumbled, looking up sheepishly at Hester, then back to the work at hand. Hester winced each time the hammer met the nail, but she never said anything. Eventually, she looked down at her feet and walked back to the house, back to her bedroom ducking her head under each doorframe. Not much later, the first of the geese arrived. It was a large bird, sleek and sidling up to everyone's legs, but especially Hester's. Soon only Hester's. It followed her around like a zealot. If someone raised a voice to Hester which I often did in argument, even if she was over eight feet tall, the goose would flap its wings threateningly, hiss, and puff up its feathers. I called the birds' names like Brunhilda and Marta. I called it the Viking bird, the assassin, the bodyguard. And eventually Hester asked me to, Please desist in offending the poor creature. It doesn't have a name like we do, Stephen. I was joking, I told her, and she said, I'm not. The discussion began and ended with Hester folding her arms across her chest in mourning. Ice Queen, I muttered as I walked away. I heard that, she shouted. Do not think your willfulness will go unrecorded. I stopped short, shaking my head in disbelief. Finally, I said, Are you protesting something, Hester? Because if you're protesting something, why don't you just say so and protest instead of acting all weird? Hester winced. I raised my eyebrows and waited. She didn't say anything. So I turned and left her there, wincing. So I turned and left her there, wincing. In our town, 
every street has five lampposts lining it. There was a town square with a gas station, a grocery store, and a supermarket, which came three years ago, set itself up like an overnight circus, and, and began selling everything from household cleaners to underwear. We no longer traveled into the city for art supplies, books, birdseed, or to have our automobile's oil changed. It was a self-sufficient community. Children attended three schools, one for elementary students, one for the middle grades, and the last one for high school. We were raised to be good, decent people who knew what it was to be practical, what real work was, and how to one day raise our own children with these same values. If our town had ever had any failing, the flaw was in our environment. Within a span of three years, most of our trees had been cut down. Dutch elm disease invaded, infested, and because of this, shade in the summer was a commodity. We had few birds, since birds and trees go together, but occasionally we'd see them pass overhead. The last refuge for our trees was the town park, a mile wide and long, where they enjoyed a small pond and a cannon used in World War II. Also, a small memorial wall engraved with the names of all the men from our town who died in one of the wars stood in the shade of our remaining elms. But all that began to change after Hester began changing. One morning, I woke up angry from a dream of eight-feet-tall geese that nipped at my ankles. When I rubbed the sleep from my eyes... I realized it was the fern brushing its lacy leaves against my feet. The fern had been growing beside the foot of my bed for nearly a month, coming up between the floorboards. I'd tried to remove it, pulling it up by its roots, but it only grew back within a few days, a persistent reminder that things were not right in the world. Ferns should not be growing in bedrooms unless they are potted. Vines should not grow over mailboxes unless the mailbox is in a jungle outpost. Tiger lilies should not grow in place of a girl's eyelashes. There are rules in this world. I told the fern this myself, but it pretended not to know what I was talking about. Suddenly, I heard Hester's geese in the backyard and her voice ringing out for them to fall in behind her. When I looked out my window, I saw her back turning the street corner with a line of ten geese following. I decided to follow as well. They didn't go far, to the park, only a few blocks away from our place. There the geese wandered aimlessly, seeming without true purpose, just like real geese. I watched Hester slip into the pond and begin washing her face, her hair. The pond could have held twenty children, but Hester filled the whole thing. It looked like a water hole with her inside it. I was going to call out and tell her she shouldn't be out alone like this, that there were still crazies around who would rather see her disappear than take a bath in this pond, but, but I stopped when I saw her rise from the water. I followed in secret, casting my own furtive looks over my shoulder. I felt like a spy capturing enemy information. What's going on in that head of yours, Hester? 
I wondered. Besides a tree growing, that is. I came down on the other side of the trees, in case Hester had placed one of the geese by the pond as a lookout. She was hiding something. That much was obvious. Luckily, the park was well-groomed. Managed is how the groundskeepers referred to it. So there was no underbrush to rattle through, which, which might have alerted Hester. There were well-trod dirt trails and little flower gardens between trees. Everything patterned like an English garden. I ducked from tree to tree, my back pressed against the bark so Hester wouldn't see me. I felt invigorated by my own cleverness. I was primal and silent. I thought maybe I should try hunting. And then, all at once, I came upon Hester, kneeling down in what appeared to be an unmanaged section of the grove. Here were brambles and thorny bushes, vines creeping up the sides of trees that grew wild with branches. There were ferns and wildflowers growing along the forest floor, and it did seem like a forest, not a park at all. There were even rings of mushrooms. I was waiting to see a fairy arrive. Hester knelt down on a patch of moss near the base of a large weeping willow. The weeping willow that grew out of her head swayed above her, and the weeping willow that grew in the grove swayed along with it. But there was no wind. Hester picked something up from the mushroom ring in her pale white hands. And as I snuck closer to see what it was, a branch broke beneath my feet. I had grown too comfortable sneaking through the managed sections of the park clear of debris and noisy branches. My dreams of big-game hunting evaporated as suddenly as I'd dreamed them. Hester's eyes snapped open. She lifted her head and looked at me as if I were one of the crazy people who left death threats on our answering machine. Stephen! She shouted in surprise, staggering up from her kneeling position. The fear in her eyes reminded me of a deer caught in headlights even though I hadn't seen a deer in our town for at least five years. I thought she was going to run, but she didn't. What are you doing here? She asked instead. I'm sorry, Hester, I said. I was going to call out, but then you came inside here. What is this place? What are you doing here? Don't worry about it she said, her face firm. It's a secret, so don't tell anyone you saw me here, not even Mom and Dad. I raised my eyebrows. Do you seriously think I'm going to leave here, say nothing, and not try to find out what it is you're hiding? I'm not hiding anything, she said. I'm protecting something. There's a difference. Sometimes you have to hide something to protect it, I said. Come on, Hester, you can trust me. I won't tell anyone, promise. At that moment, she peered down into her cupped hands at whatever she was holding. Then she opened her hands a little and lowered them so I could see. 
She was holding a grayish-colored egg. It was about the size of a football, but in Hester's hands, it appeared to be the size of a chicken egg. Blue spots polka-dotted its surface. An Easter egg, I asked, which was the first thought that came to me. Hester nodded. Yes, but not how you're thinking. What then? It's not an Easter egg, really, said Hester. Just sort of. It's bringing something back to us. Something dead is coming back again. I reached out to stroke the egg, but Hester pulled her hand back as soon as I made a move towards it. No! she shouted. You can't touch it, Stephen. No one but I can touch it. I wasn't going to hurt it. I shouted back. Don't be so bossy, Hester. I'm sorry. It's just that those are the rules. Only me. Only me, Stephen. Only I can touch it. I'm its guardian. I'm the guardian of the egg. What are you guarding it from? I asked, and Hester looked over my shoulders, then from left to right, as if there might be unseen presences eavesdropping. From them, she said. From the people. If anyone knew about the egg, that it was the cause of my changes and all the other changes around here, they'd destroy it just like they do with everything else. Why not keep it at the house, then? I suggested. Because that's the most likely place to look. If I keep the egg somewhere public, they'll never find it. People always look where they're not supposed to be looking. If I keep it where anyone could find it, they won't even think to come here. Also, the egg needs a place with trees and clean water. The park is growing stronger now. It was true. The park was slowly but surely being overtaken by a new growth of trees and wildflowers. A surge of underbrush and brambles grew over and between trees, like the strands of a spider's web. But is this a good thing? I asked. How do you know the egg isn't evil? Because I know said Hester. I just know, Stephen. You'll have to trust me. Both of us had asked for trust from the other. This was something new to my relationship with my sister. We'd barely held a conversation before this one, except to argue and put each other down. Suddenly, I felt like we understood each if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Each other had jumped over the preliminary forgiveness rituals and gone straight into a deep and meaningful friendship. I wasn't ashamed of this feeling. I wasn't ashamed of Hester anymore either. Even if she was over eight feet tall, white as a clown and covered with vegetation. I knew to trust her, and she knew to trust the egg. And so I did that, and went home with her that morning, and said nothing to anyone about her secret. Hester's growth became more problematic as each month passed. At eleven feet tall, she was quickly becoming visible to the outside world again. My father's fence would keep her from prying eyes and cameras for only a few more weeks. Also, we had no clothes that Hester could fit into, and autumn was chilling us into a sudden December. My mother went to the supermarket and ordered yards and yards of a stretchy orange fabric, then sewed it into a shapeless dress for Hester. You'll grow into it, honey, she said and ran her fingers through my sister's yellow-brown hair. Kernels of wheat clung to Hester's shoulders. Now that the sun grew weaker, Hester's hair fell out in shocks of dried brown wheat. It's a little flimsy, Hester told my mother. She lifted the hem of the dress and said, The wind will cut right through. A coat, then my mother said, and rushed back into her sewing room. Several days later, she emerged with a white cape made from bed sheets and lined with flannel. I'm sorry it's not a coat, said my mother. I didn't have enough material. Hester tied the cape around her neck. She looked dashing like a superhero. She thanked my mother and didn't complain about her makeshift clothes nor that she had to go barefoot. She knew her changes were costing our parents a small fortune. Hester spent the winter inside the house, sleeping through most of it, curled up in the dining room. She seemed to be hibernating, 
waiting. Her breath came sparsely, but it kept on coming. Her geese flew south when the cold months arrived, and I wondered if they would return when it grew warmer, or if they would find other idols to worship come next summer. Sometimes my parents and I would be in the living room, watching TV, snow falling gently against the picture window, and Hester would utter something incomprehensible from the dining room. I once asked her questions while she slept, whispering into her ear, What's happening now? To which Hester replied, There are two creatures here with me. They sit in my tree and throw down apples for me to eat. I tell them to save the apples. I'm not hungry, but they keep throwing them anyway. What do they look like? I asked. I don't know said Hester. They're in my tree, the tree growing out of my head. They're above me. I can't see them. Tell them I see them, I whispered, even though I saw nothing in the tree growing out of Hester's head. It lay across the dining room floor, brown and withered, only the trunk still looking strong and alive. Hester was silent for a moment. Then she finally spoke again. They say you are lying. They say to tell you to stop meddling in their affairs. You are not the guardian of the egg. Be patient, they say. Someday you, too, may be important. When winter died and spring came to melt the snow piled in our yards and tree limbs, Hester finally awakened. My mother was cooking breakfast for my father before he left for work. She scraped eggs around in a frying pan and I stood beside her, spooning wheat flakes into my mouth. The eggs sizzled and foamed in the frying pan. My mother was telling me about a dream she'd had the night before. There were all these people in it, she said. They all looked familiar and strange at the same time. You were in it, and so was Dad. And Mr. Jackson, the school janitor, he was there too. And Ellen Darby next door, she was trying to give me a pitchfork. We were in a forest, but our clothes were weird, rustic. We all looked like farmers and farmers' wives, bonnets and linen dresses. I kept shouting for you and your father to run before we had to start farming, but you wouldn't listen. You already had a hoe in your hands. Before I could laugh at my mother, a groan came from the dining room. My mother turned the heat off and we ran to the next room to find Hester pushing herself up from the floor. She was having difficulties. Her weeping willow was wedged in one corner of the dining room and she couldn't back up far enough to dislodge it. Help! She sobbed when we entered the room. I'm stuck! My father decided to take extreme measures. He went to the garage and came back with the chainsaw. Hester screamed when he pulled its cord, and the chainsaw began buzzing. I won't hurt you. He promised. Quickly, efficiently, he slipped the saw through several branches, and they fell to the floor in a pile of dust. Hester opened her eyes after he shut the saw off. Is it over? 
she asked, and my mother patted Hester's rump and told her everything was okay. We took the patio doors off their sliding tracks and Hester squeezed out into the sunshine. She took a deep breath and the wheat framing her face lifted towards the warmth. Finally, Hester whispered, still kneeling on the back deck in the puddles of newly melted snow. It is time, she said. Whether she spoke to us or some unseen audience, I couldn't tell. But soon a dark V-shape appeared in the sky, distant but coming closer, and within moments Hester's geese landed in our backyard, milling about, nibbling her ears, her fingers, as she stroked them. It wasn't much longer before the entire town was bursting with spring again, and the rain was falling, falling, bringing up beds of forgotten flowers. The trees budded, unfurling leaves like banners in only a few weeks. I saw a deer, a buck, one day on my way home from school, loping through the park, which was nearly unrecognizable anymore. The park had grown an unruly amount of trees around its perimeter, like the wall of thorns in the Sleeping Beauty story, and no one dared enter its darkness any longer. Children told stories about witches living in the grove at its center. Before the park became a forest, our witch stories were always set in the house of some old lady nobody liked. It was a strange phenomenon to see a story leave the comforts of our houses, our streets and cul-de-sacs, to take up residence in the new forest. Hester was busy. She paced the backyard, chewing her fingernails with a look of constant worry, while her geese flew in and out of the yard on what seemed to be missions. One would leave and another would land and waddle up to Hester to report its findings. Hester would kneel down and press her ear to the goose's bill in order to hear its secret messages. New saplings rose from the wet ground all across town. They grew thick and strong, branching and rebranching over the course of a few weeks. Bushes and brambles sprang up between them. Ellen Darby found a large thicket of blueberry bushes in her backyard. She set a sign out by her driveway that said, Fresh blueberries, pick your own. My mother told me one morning, Don't go to school, Stephen. Why? I asked. Because Hester is in trouble. I drove past the town hall this morning on my way to the supermart. There were a lot of people there already. They were in the parking lot with picket signs. They were shouting horrible things about Hester. They say the property value is declining, that it's because of her. I don't want you near that crowd. Understand me? I nodded as she patted the back of my head. My father stayed home from work that day, too. All of us gathered in the backyard. We grilled steaks and skewers of vegetables. I chased the geese around the bird bath, splashing them with water. It was good-natured fun, and they loved it. Hester could see this, so she didn't chastise. She leaned against the fence with her knees tucked up to her chest. She sighed a lot, and ate a lot, and seemed anxious. So did my parents, but they did their best to hide their anxieties. They were both good at doing that, and as their child, 
I appreciated their tact and skill at covering up their own problems. I had my own problems, and anyway, children shouldn't have to worry about their parents. It's supposed to be the other way around. Towards evening, when the sky purpled and the wind started to buck, Hester told us she was leaving. Somehow, we'd all been prepared for this, and weren't surprised by her decision. My mother resisted only once with an, Oh, honey, don't talk like that. But Hester shook her head. My mother lowered her face and said no more. She just nodded. I won't be going far, Hester told us. Just to the old park, the new forest. I'll be safe there. You can come visit me sometimes. Later, though, after everything has settled. This cheered my parents a bit. They went to Hester and hugged her arms, her legs, tried to fit their arms around her neck. They cried a little, then retreated to the house. I was about to say my goodbyes, too, but Hester spoke before me. Stephen, she said, I need you to come with me. You'll have to keep watch for a few days. If anyone tries to find me in there, you'll have to stop them, or else everything will be ruined. This is my job, isn't it? I asked. Yes, said Hester. You are the guardian of the guardian of the egg. Please, don't let me down. I nodded gravely. I would protect her under any circumstances. In a matter of minutes, I collected my whittling knife, rope from the basement, and my BB gun. I felt like an action hero gearing up for battle. Mel Gibson, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why didn't the director of Wild Thing approach one of them to play my role? We left for the park later that night. In the darkest hours, our town was silent except for the sounds of crickets whirring, night birds cooing, and the strum of frogs in their secret places. Hester's geese flew our route before us, then circled around to report that the way was clear. An unmarked white van was parked several houses down from ours, but the driver was slumped against the window, asleep from too much waiting for Hester. We followed the geese through the vine-covered streets until we arrived at the park, where Hester slipped into a dark sliver of space between two towering elms. As soon as she passed between them, she disappeared. I couldn't even hear her rustling in the branches. A moment later, her long, pale arm stretched forth from the dark place and her fingers curled inward, motioning for me to follow. I took hold of her pinky, and Hester pulled me inside her realm. The quiet of the suburbs I'd heard as we slipped through the streets of our town would have sounded like a parade in that forest. I heard nothing there but wind in the trees and the gurgle of a nearby creek. Hester loomed large above me. Her breath came heavily, as if she were anxious. Suddenly, she started walking at a fast pace, pushing through the treetops, which swayed and snapped back into place behind her. The ground beneath my feet trembled at her step.
I clasped the hem of her orange dress to my chest and followed as close as possible so I wouldn't get caught in the backlash of branches. And in this way, crashing through the forest, we found our way to the grove at its center. Tiny lights awaited us in the grove. They shimmered in the dark, floating through the night like miniature Japanese lanterns. As one passed by me, I heard a slight buzzing sound, a hum like a bee as it skims your ear in summer. I looked at Hester, who stood in the center of the grove already. The glowing creatures circled her, lit upon her face, her hair, her shoulders, upon the weeping willow growing out of her head. She held her arms out at both sides and turned in a slow circle, a smile of pure pleasure washing over her. The trees in the grove towered over Hester, unlike some of the smaller ones at the border. If I squinted here among these giant elms and maples, she looked to be the right size again. For a moment, she looked like the old Hester, the girl who was once so awkward and quiet, books clasped to her chest protectively, ready to bump into anything if it meant avoiding other people. Hester still avoided people, but now it was for different reasons. Now Hester shrank from the burdens of civilization in order to accomplish a task so mysterious even I didn't know all the reasons for her secrecy. Here, she murmured, talking to herself, really. She stood upon a small hill, and I saw that she held the egg in her hands once again. A pale stream of silver moonlight spilled over her, illuminating the trees ringing the hillside. She slipped the egg into one of the pockets of her orange dress, then bent down and forced her fingers into the earth. She groaned, struggling, flexing her muscles. The weed of her hair rustled over her shoulders, against the small of her back. The weeping willow tree growing out of her head swayed with her exertion. Finally, she pulled up a tab of earth and continued pulling until she'd pulled up the grass and sod of the hillside in one long strip. It's up to you now, Stephen, she said, wiping the sweat from her pale brow. The glowing creatures circled her as if they were planets orbiting a sun. Don't worry, Hester, I told her. I trotted up to her and she bent down and lifted me into her arms. You're so big, I said, truly realizing it for the first time. Since she'd started changing, I never actually allowed myself to touch her. I was happy to touch her now. She was still my sister. She was still Hester, underneath all of that flora. I wished I'd hugged her more often when she was still five foot seven, and I could reach my arms all the way around. Hester placed me gently back on the ground, then laid herself down in the hole she'd created. She pulled the strip of grassy sod under her chin like a blanket. She was getting comfortable in the hillside, wiggling her toes at one end, shrugging her shoulders at the other to make more room. She retrieved the egg from her pocket a moment later. Then, holding it between her forefinger and thumb, she placed it inside her mouth.
she swallowed, and the egg traveled down the column of her throat and disappeared from my sight forever. Take care, Stephen, she said, blinking soberly. Then she pulled the quilted earth over herself entirely and disappeared as well. I maintained a defensive position in the days that followed. Hester's geese helped to guard the perimeter of the grove where Hester had buried herself in the hillside. The geese patrolled the outer borders, reporting to me at varying scheduled hours during the morning, evenings, and in the night. I didn't understand their bluster, but I sensed that their posts were well watched. Only once did I feel an impending threat to the grove, and that came on the fourth night of our vigil, just when I thought things were going to be okay. Brunhilde, the Viking goose, suddenly appeared in the grove at sunset, her wings fluttering anxiously, her bill filled with an alarming honk. She led me through the forest until we reached a blind of brush that she'd selected as her vantage point. I kneeled beside her in silence and waited. And then, all at once, I heard the sound of men moving through the forest, snapping branches beneath their feet, grunting, sometimes cursing. More than one voice, perhaps three, maybe four. All male, deep and rough. I looked down at Brunhilde, gave her the signal for our agreed-upon plan of action, and she nodded gruffly and waddled out into the woods, awaiting the men. Once they reached us, she flew up into their faces, landed, jogged away from them for a moment until she was sure they were following her, and then took once again to the air. I caught only a glimpse of them. They were dressed differently from each other, one in flannel and blue jeans, another in a business suit, and also the postman. Two of them had guns, a handgun and a rifle. The postman held a baseball bat and slapped it lightly against the palm of his hand. Two shots rang out immediately. Blaster! The postman shouted. When the silence of the woods resumed a moment later, he ran forth like a dog to see if he could retrieve Brunhilde. He returned to the other men, shaking his head. Missed her, he said. But she's just up ahead. On hearing this, they began to track Brunhilde once again. It didn't take much longer to capture them. Brunhilde executed our plan brilliantly, leading them to a pit Hester had dug for us before burying herself. We'd covered it with weak branches and leaves and pieces of brush. The men ran over it. The branches broke beneath their weight, and they fell twelve feet into the earth. What other disturbances we faced were minimal. Other geese had scared off trespassers simply by surprising them, jumping out of their hiding places and chasing them out of the park. A week passed, and no more incidents occurred and I decided it was time to venture back to town. This was a trickier proposition than I thought, though. The town was no longer the town I remembered. As I slipped through the two towering trees that Hester had guided me through, it became apparent that the roads were no longer drivable. Trees broke through the pavement, tumbled the sidewalk slabs this way and that. Vines grew over street lamps, 
filtering their light so that it felt like you were underwater, like swimming at the bottom of our pool in the backyard. I found home eventually. My parents cried when they saw me, circled me in their arms, and held me close. We were so worried, so worried, my mother sobbed. Where's Hester? my father asked. I told them she was safe, that she was in the old park, that she said to tell them she loved them, but this was a call she could no longer ignore. They nodded, but I could tell they didn't understand. Where did I go wrong? My mother asked no one in particular. Was it all those years of brownies and Girl Scouts? My father pondered. We toured the rest of the town, or what remained of it, later that week. Whatever Hester and her egg were up to, it had changed our home from its original refined layout into a riot of wild things. A wellspring sprung up in the electronics department of the supermarket, ruining the TVs and computers and stereo equipment on the shelves. Deer roamed the strip mall parking lots, which now greened over with thick grasses and wildflowers. Our school found itself surrounded by oaks so tall they appeared hundreds of years old. Birdsong filled the air. The chatter of squirrels. Overnight, our town population tripled, but no one human moved in. Soon after Hester's metamorphosis reached its final stages, Many of the people of our town packed their belongings into their SUVs and minivans and drove off to other towns outside of Hester's influence. A few people stayed, though, and some newcomers arrived. It was a small settlement, and we lived off what the land provided and tried not to overextend it or ourselves. My parents decided to stay in the hopes that, one day, Hester might come back to us a regular girl again. Actually, it was my mother who held this hope. My father only indulged it from time to time. I myself felt that Hester wasn't really gone. She was all around us, in the air and in the earth and water. I could smell her, feel her chest rise and fall as I walked the forest to visit her hillside. I could hear her voice on the wind and in the gurgle of the streams. I saw her face, just once, in the still surface of a small lake. I was fishing, and then I wasn't. I was watching my reflection in the water instead, thinking, Hester, Hester, show yourself. Give them a sign. They miss you so. Hester's face swam up at me then, floating just under the water. She smiled, tilted her head at a quizzical angle, waved, then swam to the bottom again. The tree was no longer growing out of her head. Her body had returned to the young woman's body I remembered. I wondered if perhaps she had been showing herself occasionally to my mother and father and that these brief visitations kept them here in the hopes that she'd return one day for good. Sometimes at night, when my mother sews jackets and darns socks and men's buttons, when my father gathers firewood and guts fish for our dinner, 
when we're all home and the forest seems satisfied and restful, I go out to Hester's hillside, where the glowing creatures congregate in uncountable numbers, hundreds of them swarming the grove, faster flyers than most birds, brighter than most fireflies. I go out there and sit on the hillside with a book, sometimes school textbooks, sometimes an old paperback crime novel or a fairy tale, and I read aloud to Hester and the glowing creatures. They hover over my shoulder, perch upon my head or on my legs, folded Indian style, and when they are still, I can sometimes make out their faces, tiny and almost human, their eyes slightly slanted, their ears slightly pointed. They no longer hum like bees when their wings are at rest. Quiet and rapt, they listen to the adventures of detectives, or to the mishaps of children lost in the woods, abandoned by their parents. They listen to stories of terrible witches who live in Victorian houses, not in forests at all, and wonder at the utter strangeness of automobiles, airports, high-rises, factories, subways and cell phones, only to return from these visions of a world not their own, hearts eased, home again. A hauntingly beautiful story. Nature taking back what was stolen from her, and people learning to live as they once did without all the destruction and distractions of the modern world. It seems poignant in these days, with nature appearing to flex her might all over the world, but, well, that's another discussion altogether. And speaking of other discussions, if you've enjoyed what you've heard from us during the past year and want to sing our praises a little, then please pop on over to the Parsec Awards website and nominate us for a 2015 Parsec Award. Since this is our first year in existence, we are eligible for the Best New Speculative Fiction Podcaster or Team category. We only get the one shot, and by Jiminy, we're going to take it. Also, anything that we have or will run from May 1st, 2014 to April 30th, 2015 is eligible for the best speculative fiction story, small cast short form. There is a complete list of the eligible stories on the Triple F website, so if there was a specific story featured in Farfetched Fables that just blew your mind, please nominate that as well. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content, share it around all you like, but don't change it, don't sell it, and be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website. Until next time. Enjoy that beverage. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.